Well, good morning, everyone. I'm about to make some of you flashback uh, in a horrible way. But how many of you guys had to take a big test at the end of your schooling? Right, so maybe at the end of um, high school, you had to take the ACT or the SAT or AP tests, which I know are coming up, I'm sorry. Um, or maybe at the end of your uh, college, you had to take a test to be certified in your profession or it had something to do with your career. Maybe you went on to grad school, you had to take tests to, to get into to graduate school or to get out of graduate school. I had to take tests to get out of graduate school. They were called comprehensive exams or comps, which makes them sound so gentle. Um, they were two days of testing, two full days of testing, uh, three tests each day. Each test was like one or two questions. And uh, the, 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 what was on the table was, could you sum up everything that you had learned and use what you've learned, present it back comprehensively in a way to use what, it, what you learned to address certain situations. And, uh, and it really was testing, do you, do you know the stuff you're supposed to know? So that when we give you a degree, you can walk out of here and we can all be confident that, uh, that you learned what you were supposed to learn. I don't know if any of you guys have been noticing, but some of the, the new artificial intelligence large language learning models are passing these tests. Did you see uh, ChatGPT4 passed the LSAT and the SAT with a perfect score? It passed the bar exam. <laughs> so these are computers um, passing these exams. And it's, it's, it's pretty amazing what computers can do. But you know what a computer can't do? A computer can't live its life out in the world as a lawyer <laughs> or a doctor. Um, there's a difference between knowing a thing and living a thing. There's a difference between knowing the right answers, getting the right answers on the tests, but living it out. And our section of Titus today is going to help us kind of navigate the connection between the truth of the gospel, the things that we know about who God is, and then the way that we live, how we're supposed to put that into action in the world. You know, the truth makes demands on our behavior. And the Christian life isn't getting all the answers right on a test. Somehow, we have to get those things that we know to come out in the way that we live. We have to show that we're changed. So if you could turn to Titus 3. Titus is one of those little guys towards the back of your Bible. So if you go to Revelation, which is at the end of your Bible, and you head left a little bit, you'll bump into Titus. We're going to be in the last chapter. And let me remind you who Titus is. Titus is a church planter on the island of Crete. And so Crete is really this island right here at the bottom of the Aegean Sea. So to the west is Greece, to the east is Turkey. And some of you guys may know that Paul made a ton of his missionary trips right around this area. And we know that he, on those, one of those trips, he built a relationship with a Gentile uh, named Titus. And Titus, he kind of took under his wing. Titus ended up being a messenger of some uh, letters that we have in our Bible today. Titus took second, the letter we call 2 Corinthians to Corinth. Titus went with um, Paul to Jerusalem. Um, he traveled and was trained by Paul. And what we know is that Paul then left him on this island of Crete so that he could establish the churches there. He could, um, he could could help them grow up and he could help them uh, stand uh, against false teaching. We're going to see that come up today. And that he could just, he could um, really, Titus becomes responsible for the church on the island of Crete. And so we've been, we've been talking about this. We've been talking about these instructions that have come to Titus from Paul. And really, we're just kind of listening in on this correspondence. What do these two friends, these two friends who've experienced ministry together, what, what are they talking about? What are they thinking is most important? What is Paul passing on to this younger man, Titus, about what it means to be the church in a difficult place? 
So would you read with me this morning? We're going to read most of chapter 3 together. This is Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Let's pray. Lord, might your Holy Spirit meet us in your words. And might he do the work that only he can do so that our lives look more like his. So that we live faithfully in this world as people who've been rescued in loving kindness by the God who knows us and loves us. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, to dig into this passage today, we're just going to really take it and address two things. We're going to see that really Titus has this three-item to-do list. This passage really includes a three-item to-do list for Titus, three things that he needs to do, and then it's going to have God's single-item to-do list. So God has one thing on his to-do list. Titus has three things on his to-do list. How many of you in here are to-do list makers? <laughs> right? There are two people, kinds of people in the world. There's people like us who make lists, and then there's all those other people, <laughs> right? Lists are awesome, right? So there's nothing better than that feeling of crossing a thing off your list. Or how many of you guys do this? You did a thing, but you didn't write it on your list, so you go back and write it on your list and then cross it out, <laughs> right? We know what it is to make to-do lists. To-do lists are awesome. Really, what we're doing when we make a to-do list is we're talking about what do we, what's a priority for us. And this is happening here in this passage. Um, Paul has limited space. He's going to pass on to Titus what he thinks is most important. So the space is limited in the letter, but also Titus's capacities are limited. So what are going to be the most important things for Titus to do as he has this ministry in front of him? What is most critical? Those are the things that show up on our to-do lists. But to-do lists have something else happening with them, right? They become also just-in-case-you-forget lists, right? So if you're like me, you write things on your to-do list because you know it's important, but what would happen if you forgot it, right? And so we make to-do lists because, also, because not just because things are critical and a priority, but also because we're worried that we might forget to do them. 
And I think both of those things are at play here in Paul's message to, to Titus and to say, here are the things that I need you to do. So let's dig in to Titus's list. Let's see what's Titus's list, and let's acknowledge that Titus's list is our list too, right? So whatever, whatever um, Paul is going to pass on to Titus, whatever is God's priority for Titus, is also going to become a priority for us. Well, let's start right here. The very first word becomes the very first um, piece of Titus's to-do list, right in verse 1. Remind them. So remind the church, what does it say? To be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to be, and, and to show perfect courtesy to all people. Well, here's the first thing. First thing on Titus's to-do list is to remind God's people that their public life matters. First on the to-do list, remind God's people that public life matters. Now let me, let me just help us remember what was going on in Crete when Titus was there. You may remember a long time ago when Bob kicked us off in the, in the study of Titus, we were learning a little bit about the reputation that the people of Crete had. And just remember, they had a notorious reputation. They were famously turbulent and punchy and fractious. They were impatient with civic authority and the government. As a matter of fact, a Greek historian called Polybius said that they were constantly, so the people of Crete, he's describing, were constantly involved in insurrections, murders, and destructive bloody fighting. Is anyone booking their trip to Crete? (laughs) Can you imagine if that's your reputation, (laughs) right? Your reputation is they don't like the government there and they fight all the time, (laughs) right? That's the reputation of the people in Crete. And so we see somehow that, that Paul's instruction to Titus here about reminding people how to live is telling them, hey, look, there's something important about how you live your life publicly as a follower of Jesus, And so we really have kind of two sections here. The first has to do with a Jesus follower's responsibility to governing authorities. That's what rulers and authorities means there. It's a way that they would use to describe all the people who were in government. So you had the emperor, and then you had his proconsuls who then had all of their bureaucracy that came with them into a certain region. And so the thing is, we are to be, um, Paul wants Titus to remind his people to be law-abiding citizens. Follow, follow the law. Some of, this, some of us, we think we got this until I ask you what you do when you're driving down the road and there's these signs and they have numbers on them and the signs are about how fast you're supposed to let your car go. Um, and then we're like, oh, no one's watching. What's five miles over, <laughs> right? right? There's something about us. We know that somehow there are these, these rules that apply to us, and we kind of start making decisions about what matters and what doesn't matter. But part of what Paul is telling Titus here is, hey, remind people to be good law-abiding citizens, to seek to do good to the people around you. But the second part of this actually has to do with just how you interact with human beings in the world on an everyday basis. And so he has this list of things. He says, look, don't speak evil of people, avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show perfect courtesy. Well, those words kind of mask some, uh, some nuances that are important for us. When, when Paul here addresses a Jesus follower's responsibility to everyone in public life, when he says don't speak evil, that's actually a word we translate most often as blaspheme. So don't say things that aren't true about other people. Don't say things that aren't true about other people. Then he says, don't quarrel, and sometimes we think that's bickering, but really the the word there means don't fight, right? Don't get into fights with people about things. Then there's 
this word gentle, which really has like such a nuanced, full, glorious meaning that we don't really sum up well with the English word gentle, but it means to be moderate and equitable and fair and patient. As a matter of fact, it was one of Aristotle's favorite words. So the, the Greek philosopher Aristotle talked about this word gentle, and he defined it as really being indulgently considerate of human infirmities. It really just means, hey, like, be nice to people, right? Because they're not, sometimes people have struggles. Be aware of people. And then we have this, um, I, I really struggle with how the ESV says it here because it says show perfect courtesy, and we're all like, oh my gosh, perfect courtesy. But it really means complete, in all places, be considerate of others. And that courtesy really has to do with how you control your temper or your anger or your frustrations or irritations with people. So you're to be um, courteous in all places. So let's, let's just put all this together. You ready? Because if we put all it together, we see how like, this description is really a- about being an antithesis to the culture of Crete. All of this stuff was against the stereotype of what it was for people in Crete to be. And so let's put it together. Here's what the list is. Don't fight with those you disagree with politically or otherwise. Be moderate and fair-minded. Be mild and gentle in response. Don't speak falsely of others. Be patient with those whose intentions you don't understand. Don't act out of an uncontrolled temper. And now let me ask you, does this describe our modern public life? I don't think so. And so the call for us, the first item on our to-do list, is can we live differently publicly? Because we see how there's a different ethos in our political spheres and in our social media spheres and in our public spheres. We see that our culture lives very differently. And so the first thing on our to-do list is to remind one another that how we act in a public space is important. How we submit to the government is important. How we acknowledge other people's frailties and weaknesses is important. How we treat our server at the restaurant. How we treat the people who cut us off in traffic. How we treat people we politically disagree with, whether we know them personally or not. And so we're to remind one another, first item on our to-do list, is that how we live publicly matters. Why? Because we're prone to forget it. It's easy to forget it. We're in a culture that does things differently. So first item on the to-do list, let's let's care about our public life. Next item on the to-do list, look down, um, it actually appears in uh, in verse 8, but it's summing up everything before it. um, The to-do list says, insist on these things. It says, insist on the truth of the gospel. That's the next item on our to-do list. Would you start reading with me in verse 3? Let's just look really quickly at what this passage actually says in the next section. Here's what Paul says. He says, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. The beginning of the truth of the gospel is always realizing our need for it. And so this section of scripture begins its discussion about the gospel truth we're to insist on with reminding us of who we would be without God. Remember that all these people in Crete, these are first generation Christians, right? There was no one at this time in Crete who goes, well, I just grew up in a Christian home. I grew up going to church. That wasn't a thing at this point in time, right? Right? 
And so everyone who was a follower of Jesus at this time would have been people who converted from a different way of life. Unless you were very young, unless you were very young, you knew what it was like to live the way that the people of Crete lived. And even Paul himself, he says, this is who we were. It's a reminder that we are a mess without God's intervention. We're blind and lost and foolish, hating, being hated, which, by the way, is the opposite of God's command to love and know his love. The gospel starts with a reminder that that is who all of us are without the good work of God. When I was in uh, graduate school, I had a, had a class with an awesome professor. He was actually one of the main translators of the New International Version of the Bible. He knew scripture so well. And one day in class we were working in Titus and he made everyone get out a pen and in their Bibles he made a circle or, you know, make a box around um, verses four through seven. And he said, really, in all of scripture, this is the most concise summary of the gospel that exists. He says, if you, it's one sentence in the Greek, and if he says, if you want to find a place where it just sums up comprehensively, concisely, what God has done for us, here it is in Titus 3, 4 through 7. So if you're a person who writes in your Bible, go ahead and circle it. It's a great passage to remind yourself of what the gospel actually teaches us. But let's take it piece by piece and remind one another what this good news of Jesus is. First, we see what? What has happened? Down in verse 4, then the, when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. What happened? God saved us through a definite act in history. It happened. Jesus came. He was incarnate. He took on human flesh. He became like us. He lived a sinless life. He died a sacrificial death, and he lives again in this particular moment in history. What happened? God's loving kindness broke in to save us from that way of life that came before. And then so we would ask the question, well, on what basis? And, And we're answered here. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So on what basis does this salvation come? It does not come from any merit you and I possess. It's not of our own. It comes from God alone and by his mercy. It creates in us a fundamentally different way of being. God saves us on the basis of his mercy. And what does that saving consist of? Well, we're told in these verses it consists of what? Look back down at verse, uh, the end of uh, verse 5. The washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, and in verse 7, and being justified. So a washing, a renewal, and a justification. We're washed and cleansed of our sins. We're made right with God as we accept the forgiveness that's offered to us through Christ's death on the cross. A renewal comes. It's an, it's an image of the renewal of all things. Every broken thing is made right. Everything that is um, uh, bad will become undone. Everything that is sad is passing away, and then we are justified. We are declared righteous in God's sight as what Jesus did on the cross is applied to us through his mercy and his grace and our faith in him. Tim Keller sums these things up, and he says, really, these verses are about time travel. He says, it's not us going to the future, but it's the future coming to us. In the future of us being made right with God 
of being with him forever, of all things being set right, of a washing and forgiveness, that that future becomes accessible to you and I now as we trust Jesus Christ to save us. So what is this gospel? It's God working to save us on the basis of his mercy alone, to wash and regenerate, to renew and justify, and by what means? Well, by the Holy Spirit, by God himself, who comes to take up residence in us and to bring with him all of the benefits that come with Christ in his sacrificial death and resurrection. And then what is the goal? That we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What's the goal? We'll be with him forever. And so what's on the to-do list here? The to-do list is insist on these things. Insist on these things. These things are the heart of the matter. Other translations say stress these things. Keep the main thing, the main thing. What's the main thing? It is the gospel pronouncement that God is making people right in Christ and that by his mercy alone, he's called them into a new way of being in the world, that they have the hope of eternal life in him. Because of this gospel truth, then, we can now live as we are supposed to live. And so we see here that it results in what? A devotion to good works, things that are excellent and profitable for people. Why do we insist on these things? Here's why I think we might get distracted. I think sometimes, especially in settings like this, we might be tempted to think that everyone knows this, right? My guess is that even some of us right now, we tuned out right when we're summarizing the gospel. Because we're like, yes, just got it, got it. Jesus died on the cross for me, check. And so we think that we can skip it. But the gospel isn't something that you learn one time, you lock it down, and then you move on into new and better things. The gospel actually becomes this defining paradigm for how we live our lives. We insist on the gospel because I need to hear it every day. We insist on the gospel because you need to hear it every day because we must be reminded over and over and over that the good things that have come to us have come by grace alone, by faith, and that we have the hope of eternal life. And if we really understood those things, then we live differently. And so we have the second item, insist on the gospel so we don't get distracted. But what about the third item on the to-do list? The third item picks up in verse nine. It's pretty simple. Titus is told, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. Last on his to-do list is this call to avoid controversy. There were tons of theological controversies in Titus's day, and uh, the most, uh, most of them had to do with how much of the Jewish um, systems of belief were to come over into the new uh, Christian faith. And so what's going to be the, how are the food laws going to interact with us? How are we going to, do we still need to keep all the rules of, of the Old Testament? Um, what, is the, what is the sign that sets us apart? And so all this conversation is coming over into the earliest church. And we have even have in the scripture a record of like, just like some of the controversies that were coming up, up about this. We know that even kind of just right before this time, um, Paul had challenged Peter to his face and said, look, you're getting this stuff wrong. Like there's, a, there's a problem here. And so theological controversy was, sw- uh, was swirling around. And so Paul is warning Titus about false teaching. 
Paul is warning Titus that there are going to be people out there who insist that they're going to add to the gospel or they're going to take away from the gospel and they're going to teach these things that aren't true. And so what should you do? He says, well, tell them one time. And if that doesn't work, tell them another time. And then if that doesn't work, just don't engage anymore. Because for Paul, what's more important here is that we, we focus on what needs to be focused on which is the truth of the gospel. Avoid all these controversies. And what's to be assigned to him that the refusal of people to change when their theology is challenged is a sign that that you're done engaging with them. And we need to leave that to God. You know, my dad had a saying. He'd say, um, never wrestle with a pig. You both get dirty and the pig likes it. I think, I think this is kind of what Paul is saying here, right? <laughs> right? He's saying, don't wrestle with a pig. He's saying, look, you can I- engage, and then, and then once you realize there's a stubborn insistence about a broken uh, theological idea, just, just leave it to God. Step away. Step away. So we have Titus's to-do list. What's the to-do list? It's to remind, insist, and avoid. And so some of us right now, you're like, got it. Way to go. Three item to-do list. Check, check, check. I can work on those. Um, Very good. Thank you. Are we praying and done now? (laughs) Right? But if we thought we were done now, we might miss what is absolutely critical, most important in this whole passage. Because there's another to-do list here. And it's a to-do list that belongs to God. And it's a to-do list with one item on it. God's one item to-do list. And I've labeled that a little deceptively. Titus has three things to do. But it's knowing what God's job is that is the key to it all. And God's job, his one item, is everything else. Titus has three things. Remind, insist, avoid. And if we look closely and if we think closely about what's going on here, we will see that everything else belongs to God. First, the passage makes it explicitly clear, right, in verses um, 4 and 5, right, that the most important things that happen to us are God's work. They are on God's to-do list. You and I cannot save ourselves. We cannot make ourselves right. And so what comes on to God's to-do list? Well, God's to-do list is to reach out to us in initiating love. God's to-do list is to save us from the consequences of our sin and death that comes with it. God's to-do list is to wash and renew from sin. God's to-do list is to pour out the Holy Spirit. God's to-do list is to justify those who belong to him. God's to-do list is to give eternal life. And none of that is something any of us can do. God's to-do list is everything else. But look at what else God does. If we read between the lines, we should notice a couple things. You know, if Titus's to-do list and our to-do list was to remind one another that how we live matters, that our public life matters, then it becomes God's job to protect and to provide in the midst. It becomes God's job to guide rulers and authorities and government. It becomes God's job to protect his own reputation. We don't rescue and save the culture. God does that. 
We live differently, and then we leave the verdict to God alone. Friends, on our to-do list is simply to live as faithfully as we can to what God has called us to do, and then to leave the results to Him. What else is on God's to-do list? Well, if we're to avoid foolish theological controversies, then it becomes God's job to address them. It becomes God's job to work in people's hearts to change them. It becomes God's job to hold people accountable for their behavior and their beliefs. It becomes God's job to protect the truth so that it persists into the future. Don't you see? Our requirements are so small. Our to-do list is so small. It's simply this. Believe the gospel. Receive the Holy Spirit. Slowly, humbly work to bring your life into alignment with those truths. And God does everything else. We're not promised that it doesn't mean suffering. We're not promised that it will always look like we're winning. We're not promised that we're going to get our way. We're not promised that people won't attack us and undermine the truth. We aren't promised that people will assume the worst of our motives. We're not promised that everything is gonna work out the way that we think things are best. But all of that is God's job. It's not yours, it's not mine, it wasn't Titus's, and it wasn't Paul's. And so what is your trust level in God's to-do list? How comfortable do you, do you feel doing the things you know to be right to the best of your ability and then leaving the results to God? You know, there's a, a loving God who has already done everything that it requires to rescue you and I. And now we begin the actual work, the actual comprehensive exam. And it just becomes the lifelong process of doing the things that God gives us grace to see as faithfully as we can, acting in ways that we we try desperately to bring into alignment with his will, and then trusting him with the rest. You know, getting the relationship right between what we believe and how we live is the lifelong work of a Jesus follower. This is all we do. We we insist on the gospel and we say, how can I let the gospel be present in the things that I do? We desire to see our lives produce fruit that honors God and points people to him, but we make a mistake if we get it turned around. Because God is always the bigger one at work. God is always the one with the longer to-do list. God is always the one who is working in your life and my life to remind us of his love for us and his love for the world around us. God's salvation and justification in eternal life is not tied to your ability to live perfectly. We didn't receive it that way, and we don't keep it that way. God's love is towards us. Hey, imperfect friends, just like me, imperfect friends, listen. God loves you. Whether you get all these things right or not, 
Whether you wake up in the morning and you struggle and you have doubts, or whether you're as confident as can be marching into the world, God's love is for you. And he says, now we're on the lifelong mission of bringing our lives into alignment with what has already been declared true of us, that we're loved and adopted and accepted and valued. This is the essence of the Christian life. And this is the comprehensive exam that we're given by a professor who has already given you an A+. The professor loves you. The teacher loves you. He's delighted to have you in the class. And he says, now go live your life because you know I love you. And I've taken care of everything else. There's a lyric to a, a song that I really love. Uh, the closing stanza hits on some of these ideas. I just want to share it with you. It goes like this. It says, when it's time to harvest the little that grew and the man they call Jesus who planted the seeds has now come for the fruit, the best that I've got isn't nearly enough. He's glad for the crop, but it's me that he loves. It is you that he loves. Whether you get it right or you get it wrong, whether you're figuring it out or you're struggling, never forget the difference between our to-do list and his to-do list. Ours is simply to do as we're given grace to see. And it is his to pour out his love on us from now until eternity. Let's pray. God, I know that probably in this room there's some of us who um, would prefer that, um, that a relationship with you looked more like a to-do list. That we could know we were getting things right instead of wrong. That we know that we were checking all the boxes. But God, I celebrate that the most important things, they were never on our to-do list. that the exam has already been passed by Jesus Christ. And that his love for us is towards us always. Lord, would you give us grace to see the things we could do better? Would you give us grace to step out in boldness to serve in ways that we haven't, to, to bring our life into greater alignment with how you would have us to live. But Lord, might those things never compromise our confidence that you love us and you save us by mercy alone. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.